I'm at the famous garden tomb outside the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. This tomb is unlike any other tomb in the world. And the reason it is different is because it is an empty tomb. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was crucified here in Jerusalem or outside the walls of Jerusalem. He was placed inside a tomb and he lay there for three days. But on the Sunday morning, Jesus was resurrected and walked out of the tomb and cried out in a voice that shook all creation, I am the resurrection and the life. I have visited some great tombs. Just recently, I was over there in Moscow. I went to Red Square and I went into the tomb of Lenin. Of course, he is the great man who founded the communist revolution. But Lenin is in that tomb. He's a dead person. And communism is dead today in Russia because it was founded upon a dead man. But Christianity is alive and well today because it is not founded upon a dead man. It is founded upon a living Christ. Jesus, my friend, is alive. Now some people may say to me, it doesn't really matter whether Jesus lived or died or was resurrected as long as you believe in this. My friend, that is not good enough. Our faith is not based upon myths. It is not based upon wishful thinking. It is based upon historical realities. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus was raised from the dead. Let me ask you this question. If Jesus were not raised from the dead, then what happened to his body? Now some have said the disciples came by night and they overpowered the Roman guard and they stole the body. Could you really believe that, friend? Eleven dispirited men, broken down in spirit and in fortitude, coming to those brawny Roman soldiers, beating them down and taking away the body. It's absurd. Other people say, well, maybe the Jewish people took the body, or the Romans took the body. That argument is equally absurd because if they had taken the body, they would have produced the body and stopped forever the preaching of the doctrine of the resurrection. The way to finish the teaching of Christ, my friend, is to produce the dead body of Christ, but nobody can do it, nobody could do it, and nobody ever will do it because Christ is alive. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died here, Jesus was buried here, and Jesus was resurrected here. Our Christ, my friend, is alive. And because he lives, we too shall live. Today is the third in the series on the amazing prophecies of the book of Daniel. The topic today is a great topic, Budge not, burn not. A number of years ago, when I was visiting Iraq, I went south to Babylon. I told you a bit about this a week or two back. I went outside Babylon and I saw there these huge brick kilns. And the fires were blazing away these great brick kilns. 
and those brick kilns were being fueled by black oil. There are lots of burning, fiery furnaces in that part of the world. There's lots of oil. I drove one day from uh, Baghdad up to Mosul. And just before uh, we got to Mosul, I had to get out of the car. I told the car to pull up on the side of the road. And I wanted to walk out into the bush a bit. There's not a lot of bush there. When you get up towards Mosul, it's, it's very barren. And as I was walking away from the car, I, I felt it's hard to walk. And I looked down and my shoes were disappearing beneath thick black ooze. Oil. It just oozes up out of the ground. The whole place. I remember when I was flying into uh, Kuwait, I was looking out, I'd flying from Baghdad to Kuwait, and as the plane was coming in to land at the Kuwait airport, I was looking out the window, and I saw these lakes. I thought, goodness, look at these lakes out here in the desert, because it's all sand. And the sun was shining on the lakes. It was hard to look at them. Then as the plane got very low and came in over the lakes, I discovered that the lakes were black. These were not lakes of water. These were lakes of oil. So there's plenty of oil in that part of the world. And when I went outside the city of Babylon, just nosing around, here were these brick kilns, very, very hot, fueled by oil. Today we're going to talk about three young men who would not budge and who would not burn, who were thrown into a fiery furnace, into a brick kiln, because they refused to obey the command of the king. I would like you to take your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. And remember, this is the third in the series. Daniel chapter 3. And uh, verse 1. Daniel chapter 3. Verse 1. Are you ready? Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. We welcome you here today. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This is quite a, an amazing story because you'll remember last week we spoke about the great metal man, the dream of destiny, Nebuchadnezzar's amazing dream, this great metal man that told the history of the world. And in Daniel 2, you have a great colossus, a great man, but only the head is of gold. The chest is of silver. And the belly and the thighs are of bronze. And the legs are of iron. And the feet are partly of iron and partly of clay. And in Daniel chapter 2, then you have a great stone that comes and strikes into the great metal man. But in Daniel chapter 3, 
you've got a great metal man and he's made of gold. And in the original language, of course it doesn't say 90 feet high, it says 60 cubits. And six cubits across. This number six really got the wheels spinning in the mind of an oriental. Six. This is the number of the Antichrist. And so when you come to the book of Revelation, you have the number of man's triple apostasy. Six, six, six. This great metal man that is actually the image of the Antichrist is 60 cubits high. Six cubits wide. And he is all of gold. Why is he all of gold? Because Nebuchadnezzar was anxious to believe that his kingdom would last forever. But the prophet told him in Daniel chapter 2, and you will remember this from last week, that after him would come another kingdom, and then another kingdom, and another kingdom, and then there would come division. And because he was so filled with pride, because he was so arrogant, he said, I'm going to build myself another image, and it's going to represent the kingdom of Babylon that will never, never pass away. And so he erected it on the plains of Dura, 60 cubits high and six cubits across. Now, Dr. Burt, the Jewish people at this time considered that the idols or an idol of the heathen was an abomination. So they called an idol the abomination. Many, many Jewish scholars, instead of calling the book of Daniel, Daniel, they called it the abomination of desolation. Because this is a term that runs all the way through the book of Daniel, and Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24, the abomination of desolation. And to Christians around the world, all the scholars, they have believed that the abomination of desolation is the Antichrist, this idol that makes desolate the hearts of men. And so when Nebuchadnezzar sets up this great image, 60 by 6, he is setting up the abomination of desolation that represents the rule of the Antichrist. So please read on. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 2. He then summons the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. What a bureaucracy. To come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. What a great 
ecumenical meeting. Everybody is there. Everybody, all the great people from around the world are there. Every religion is there. And one scholar said it was an ecumenical gathering calculated to have a profound psychological impact upon all. Have you ever heard about group pressure? Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Burt, who is a psychiatrist, can talk to you about group pressure. It has also been called the tyranny of the crowd who wants to be different. There is the pressure to conform when you're in a crowd. Remember the movies that show the Nazis? Vast gatherings of people with heaps and heaps of flags and a man standing up the front who is brainwashing them and the millions who are there assemble are raising their arms and shouting out, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil. And then when the little man with the big moustache, Hitler says, I want you to eliminate these vermin. The nation cries out, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil. And young men who are brought up as good Roman Catholics and good Lutherans help to throw the babies into the fires. These good, decent people were the ones who turned on the gas. There is something about a crowd that causes people to conform. It's like sitting on a church committee. And the chairman says, this is the way we ought to go. You'll find there are very, very few Christians on that committee who will raise a hand and say, I do not believe that is right because of the pressure to conform. That is why people of all religion in the last days will receive the mark of the beast because of conformity. God would have us to be Christian nonconformists. Would you please read on with me? You say, this is rather, str- rather strong. Well, it is the truth. It is the truth. Verse 4 and onwards, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipes of and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. I want you to notice now the concept of the separation of church and state. Back in these days, 
there was no such distinction between church and state. None at all. The idea that the church should act in its sphere and the state should act in its sphere is a very, very modern concept. America, God bless her, has helped to lead the world in the truth about the separation of church and state. You will remember the words of the apostle who said, it is better to obey God than to obey man. That's what Peter said. It's better to obey. The Sanhedrin said, you must obey us. They said, we will not. You must not preach. They said, we will. But we are the voice of God. We are the Sanhedrin. The apostles said, it is better to obey God than man. And Jesus, our blessed Lord, said, render to Caesar the things that be Caesar's and to God the things that be God's. These flags represent the reign of Caesar. But this represents the reign of God. Why do you ask, do you have these flags here? These flags are here simply to represent that the message of God must go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. That's the reason. And so this idea that church and state must be separate is relatively a new idea. Jesus gave us the reason for it. During the Dark Ages, in Europe, church and state were one. Even the Protestant reformers did not understand. Martin Luther did not understand the truth about the separation of church and state. On this point, the great Protestant reformer was walking in the dark. And then the great Protestant reformer, John Calvin, who had a difference of theological viewpoint with one of the greatest scientists of the age. John Calvin had him burnt to death at the stake. And Calvin, the man of God, said, let the fire, let the fire would be green so he will burn the longest. And so this idea of the separation of church and state is somewhat a new idea. The Muslim, not one Muslim country has the separation of church and state. In fact, no country in the Middle East has the separation of church and state. The state of Israel does not have the separation of church and state. In Israel... Uh, the Jewish religion is the state religion and dictates public policy. There are many countries that do not understand this. America stands for the separation of church and state. So does Australia. So does New Zealand. So does Canada. And so do most of the countries of Western Europe. But many, many countries, even in this enlightened age, are no farther advanced than King Nebuchadnezzar. And so the state, that is the church, says, bow down and worship. 
Verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the people, nations and men of every language, fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. What a picture. All the peoples. There was a sea, not of faces, but of bent backs and dusty noses. As the whole wide world got down and worshipped. It takes courage to speak up for what you believe in and to obey the word of God at the cost of your life. Who here has that courage? I ask you. Now some people have said, well, the majority must be right. Therefore we go with the majority. Jesus said, strive to enter in through the straight gate because broad is the way that leads to damnation and many there be that go therein. Jesus said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it, but wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to hell. It's not always safe to be on the side of the majority. It's better to be in the right with two or three than in the wrong with the multitude. I notice that the majority has never been on the side of truth. There was Noah, a preacher of righteousness. He got eight people, including himself, into salvation. There was Elijah. When Elijah stood on Mount Carmel, he stood alone, and the priests of Baal were there by the hundreds. There was John the Baptist, who was a voice crying in the wilderness. A voice crying in the wilderness. There was Jesus our Lord, who had a little group of disciples, but the whole organized religion and the state were against our Lord. There were the apostles in the minority. I think of my own Adventist church because, as you know, I am a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. In the year, let me give you an illustration, 1888, the Lord sent a great message to the General Conference. It came through two young men, Jones and Wagner. There was one person who stood at their side. One person, Ellen White. And the rest fought and opposed the message of God, including the general conference president and most of his staff. It is not always safe 
to follow the majority in the church. Follow Christ in the Bible. If you would escape the mark of the beast. Verse 8, you say, is it possible that even Adventists could get the mark of the beast? Are they not people? Would you please notice verse 8 of Daniel 3? At that time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Here you have some classic anti-Semitism. We fear and hate those who are different. These Jews served a different God. They had a Sabbath that was a different day. They ate different food. And because of plain bigotry, they came and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Motivated by the spirit of Babylon, which is pride and arrogance. And instead of obeying God, playing God. Did you hear this? We're not called to play God. We are called to obey God. But this man with the spirit of Antichrist says, I'm going to deal with you because you will not bow down. These people who hated religious minorities come forward and accuse the greatest men that could be found, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king is right, he says, or rather the advisors to the king are right when they say, these young men will not obey you because they do not serve your gods. The issue is religious liberty. The issue is the right to serve God or not to serve God according to the blessed dictates of conscience. One great scholar said the way of conformity is ever the way of mediocrity. And the price of true glory is independence of spirit and loyalty to the Most High. Each one of us, my friend, one day is going to be tested. Would you please read on? Verses 16 and onwards. I'll start at verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? 
Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, scyther, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand. O king, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have said up. The day is coming, my dear friends, when each one of us is going to be tested in the fire when a decree will go forth, you must surrender your convictions for the greater good. But there comes a time to every child of God when he weighs it all in the balances and says, we will not serve your gods, therefore we will not obey you. I want to give you a little, as the Russians say, choot-choot, little illustration. In 1995, God used me to conduct with my team the largest evangelistic campaign in the history of the Soviet Union, the largest evangelistic campaign for the continent of Europe and Asia. That was in the city of Kiev. We opened with more than 35,000 people. I've forgotten the number. Outside between 50,000 and 100,000 who couldn't get in. The meetings were so blessed. The auditorium seated either nine or 12,000, but we had thousands standing twice a night. And as the meetings went on, the wrath of the devil were stirred. The minister of religion for the Kiev government sent us forth a directive, close down the meetings. And we had a permit authorization for the meetings with the government. Elder Matiko will remember it. The Ukrainian brethren came to me and said, we will not close down the meetings. What are you going to do? I said, well, they'll have to arrest me, won't they? Because I plan to be there tonight preaching. And so we went to the American embassy and the Australian embassy and the Canadian embassy, and they stood with us. They said the Ukrainian government is going against the United Nations. It is going against NATO. It is going against its own law. Then I received a summons. Come down to City Hall. 
And so, with some of my friends, Norman Matiko, Paul Mikkelsen, and the Ukrainian brethren, who, thank God, are not wimps. They've learned it over there, not to be wimps who go to big bulges of jelly with opposition. I've seen it so often in the West. I sometimes wonder what's happened to our manhood in the West. I went down, I was taken in, I could not take anybody with me but my translator. The minister of religion for the government said, Pastor Carter, we command you, close down the meetings and leave. Now those guys are used to people saying yes. I gave them a new experience. I said no. Oh, they said, well, now that, that threw them a bit because they'd never had that before. No? What does that mean? Just no. I'm not going to close down the meetings. Are you going to arrest me? Well, then they went to the police and they said, don't have any police go to those meetings. And if they don't have the police there to supervise the vast crowds, we've got a legal case. The Ukrainian brethren went out and visited went to police station after police station, they could not find a single policeman who would come until about six o'clock that evening when we found a major and he said, I'll bring all my men. So the meetings went that night. Then they went to the director of the Palace of Sport and they said, these people are heretics, close down the meetings. That old communist said, they're the best people you've ever had here. And they're preaching a message that is helping the people. I will not close down meetings. Then when we were going to have a baptism and we needed 40 buses, the government said, don't give those people buses. But the Ukrainian leadership of the church, not wimps, I say again, they went out and scoured the countryside and on the Sabbath day, we had 40 buses. And that day, we had the largest baptism, thousands and thousands, a total 3,488 baptisms. Now, when I got back here to America, some people who should have known better came to me and they said, Brother John, you should have closed down the meetings. You're getting a bad name for yourself. You're going to get a bad name for our church. Why didn't you come home? Firstly, because I'm a man. Hopefully not a wimp. Remember the three sexes they talk about in Australia. Men, women, and clergymen. I'm not a clergyman. I trust I'm a man of God. Those who would close down religious meetings because of the decree of some minister of religion are going to get the mark of the beast. I think of Pastor Kulikov. I admire these people. In the days of Stalin, he was preaching in the church. They said, stop preaching. No. So they sent him to Siberia. That was the, the real old man. Then the next Sabbath, his son got in the pulpit. Where would you be? Where would you be? I want to say to the elders of my church, where would you be? 
Where would you be skulking at home under the bed? The next Sabbath, his son, Mikhail, stepped into the pulpit. They sent him to Siberia. This is an appeal for men and women of God. Not wimps and sooks and flakes and babies. Over here, a couple of weeks ago, when we were preparing the commercials for the great campaign coming up in Zaporozhye, we had one of the Kulikov men there. One of the sons, a great man of God, great man of God, head and shoulders above most of us. One of those young men was put in the army in the days of the Soviets. They said, work on the Sabbath. He said, no. Work on the Sabbath. No. So they sent him to the north of Siberia and in the midst of a Siberian winter where the air seems to freeze, just in a summer uniform, they put him outside to unload railway trucks all through the night, all through the day, all through the night, because he had the courage to say, no, no, no. I think of Martin Luther, whom some people idolize. I greatly respect him, but not idolize him. He made many mistakes, but he was a man of God. Men of God make mistakes, but they're not cowards. And they don't run home to their mothers when there's some persecution. I need my mummy. They're men. Martin Luther, the emperor said, recant, he said, unless I am shown by the texts of the Bible, standing at Worms, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand, God help me. That's the spirit of a Christian. It is the spirit of a true American. To say no, even if the church tells you to do something. Some people in my church think that if a church leader speaks, it's God talking to them. It's about time you started to read the Bible. About time you started to think for yourself. About time that you got over your brainwashing and believe it is God first. God first. And our texts, the texts of the Bible, bind our conscience. Look at verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was furious. I guess that's an understatement. Those who will not be convinced by reason are usually exasperated by it. Sorry, you missed that. The Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers, hallelujah, who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, 
fell into the blazing furnace. God give us men, I say. Three young men, they would not budge. They would not bow. They would not bend. And time was to show they would not burn. Now listen to this. The fire consumed only their bonds, we shall discover. It's an interesting thing that God delivers us in trouble, not from trouble. All of my evangelical friends who believe in the rapture and then the great tribulation, I say to you, haven't you read this story? This story is the story of the coming great tribulation when the whole world uh, becomes a blazing fiery furnace. God does not deliver his people from trouble, but in the midst of trouble. So important. Oh, but I'm going to be raptured home to glory and I'm going to miss all the fire. If you miss the fire, it'll be because of another reason. But there'll be fire for you, mark my words. Read on, please, in this great story, which is really a prophecy. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, asked his advisors, listen, why on earth would he need to ask his advisors? Sometimes autocrats would be better without them. So he asks these advisors, can I see what I see? Why do you need advisors to tell you just to open your eyes? But anyhow, he asks his advisors. He's the quintessential bureaucrat. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, you know what I think of bureaucrats. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. They were yes men. If there had been 10 men there, they would have said, certainly, sir. So he says to the yes man, did we throw three men in? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And salute. Yes, sir. Read on. Verse 25. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched. And there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Hallelujah. 
Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, he hadn't learned tolerance. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. No other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Listen to me, please. The darkest hour of the saints is God's noon. Now, you don't have time to read it now. I don't want you to read it. But in Daniel chapter 12, there's a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. That's the fiery furnace at the end of the world. You're going to be in it. Are you ready for it? What sort of man are you? What sort of woman are you? Are you a yes man? Are you afraid to speak up for God? And the Bible says a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. And at that time, the great prince that stands for the children of your people, the great prince who stands for the children of your people, Michael, he who is like God, stands up. And the Bible tells us that there is a great resurrection and every person whose name that is written in the book is delivered. The great theme of Daniel is God can deliver. Who is like under this God? You've got a problem? God can deliver. Who can save like this God? Now listen, everybody watching in television, I want to tell you some truth. Truth is as scarce today in the Christian church as hen's teeth. Ever opened a, a bird's mouth and looked for his teeth? Truth is as scarce as hen's teeth. We are about the most superficial people on the face of the earth. We get our truth from television and not from the Word of God. We are getting ready for the mark of the beast to get it. In the apocalypse, you don't need to turn to it now, but I'm going to tell you what it says. A power rises in the last days, comes up like a lamb, speaks as a dragon, and he says... We're going to set up an image to the beast. That's what this chapter is talking about. The image to the beast, the image of the beast, the abomination of desolation, and the decree goes forth. If you don't worship the image of the beast, we're going to kill you. A death decree is going to be issued from the governments of the world, starting here. That if you don't conform 
then you'll be put to death. And it goes on to say, and he put a mark in the forehead, in the hand of every man, woman, and child, and said, we won't buy your goods. We won't sell to your goods. We won't sell anything to you unless you get the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is a counterfeit Sabbath. And people are going to get the mark of the beast because when they went to church and when they went to church conference committees and when they watched television, they learned to be conformists. But God will have his people. He always has. They are called the remnant. So, but I'm a part of it. Ah, don't be too quick. You haven't gone through this test. The remnant keep the commandments. And the faith of Jesus, when the de death decree goes forth to the world, I want to tell you folks something. Things happening today, this is not sensationalism. Things are happening today that tell me that the great decree is just around the corner. You know what's going to happen? The vast majority of people are going to say, okay, don't want to cause a stir. I, I, I've never thought for myself anyhow. I, I always just go with the crowd. I just do whatever I'm told. Doesn't matter what. I just go ahead. They're going to get the mark in their foreheads. Others are going to get it in their hand. This is work. This is what you think. When the decree goes forth, wrapped up in all the flags of all the different countries. So it looked kosher and good. When it's all wrapped up in nationalism, and the false worship of God, there's going to be a sea, not of faces, but of bent backs and dusty noses. But there'll be some who'll say, we will not. And those people will bend not. They will budge not they will bow not. And they will burn not. Determined by the grace of God that you will not be part of the great conformity movement and that you will put God first and his word. 
that you will be God's sweet, loving, born-again nonconformist. Therefore, my message to you comes summed up now in two phrases. Budge not. Burn not. Amen. Please kneel. Nobody leave, because I'm going to have a little ceremony after this. Nobody leave. Just look at me. If you're not a, a daily reader of the Bible, then you're getting ready for the mark of the beast. If you don't spend time every day with the Lord Jesus and read the Word of God direct, people say, oh, I read books about it. Hey, what do you have to read books about it for? People say, oh, I read... Uh, I read the Spirit of Prophecy. What's wrong with you? Don't you know she said the Bible and the Bible alone should be heard from our pulpit? Didn't you know that? Don't you know she was the greatest Protestant? Don't you know she'd throw up if, he, if she saw the church as it is today? We need to make a vow to read the Bible and to follow our consciences. And to ask God to give us a little stiffening in the backbone. Not so, well, like the man who was asked the swaggy in Australia. That's the person who drifts around in the country. How do you determine which way you go? He said, I always go when the wind is on my back. Never walk into the wind always goes with the wind on his back. Don't go with the wind on your back. Walk into the storm. Dear Father, we thank you for these people here today. Thank you for this great, great message. Do something, Lord, for this congregation and for all of us, including me. Help us to become people of character, people of conviction, people of dedication, people of piety, people of steadfast convictions who will say when God says go, yes. But when the devil says go, who will say no. Bless us. Hear our prayer, O Lord. Save us from our own weaknesses. We dedicate ourselves to you to read the Bible and to follow the teachings of Holy Scripture. As we're praying today, how many will raise a hand and say, I don't want to be a conformist, a religious conformist, I want to be God's man. Would you raise your hand if that's your prayer? I don't want to be a religious conformist, I don't want to get the mark of the beast, I don't want to be a wimp, I don't want to be a clergyman, I want to be God's man. Raise your hand. Dear Lord, bless these upraised hands. Give this church great courage and strength and bless the telecast. For Jesus' sake, amen.